Bible Biogs in 30 minutes. Through the Bible, one character at a time. Author, pastor and Bible teacher Mike Beaumont is in conversation with David Taverner. In this episode, we're looking at the life of Isaac, um, which you can read about from Genesis chapter 21. Mike, tell us a bit about um, Isaac's parents. His dad was called Abraham or Abram, as he starts out in the story. And his mum was Sarah or Sarai. Again, we saw that change in, in a previous episode that we've looked at together. God changed their names to mark out a new beginning in their relationship with him. So this family of nomads who come from the east, from the land of Mesopotamia, his family originally from Ur of the Chaldees. They'd moved up north to Haran, 500 miles or so to the north. And God had spoken to Abraham, who didn't know him at that time, remember, but he'd spoken to him, broken into the life of this former, almost certain moon worshipper, and it told him to go to the land that I'll show you. And so we pick up the story there in this land that God showed him, the land of Canaan that we call Israel today. So when Isaac's born, how old are his parents? His dad was 99 years old, uh, we discover in chapter 17, (laughs) when God makes him the promise. So he's probably almost 100 by the time Isaac is born. And both the Old Testament and references in the New Testament make it pretty clear that both mum and dad were well past the child-producing age by this stage. So this really was God's intervention. Was that their first son? No, they'd had a son earlier. Abraham, a great man of faith, but he wasn't perfect. And he fell into that thing that some of us do sometimes, thinking he could help God out. He'd done it a couple of times in his life, despite his faith in God. And when his wife couldn't have a child, he thought, well, God's spoken to us. He's promised us a child. This is a child that's going to affect the whole world. My wife can't have children. And so he'd done something that they did in those days. He'd adopted a cultural norm of taking his wife's servant, an Egyptian girl called Hagar, and had had a child through her because legally she would then be counted as their own child. And then God had said to him, that child was Ishmael. God had said, no, 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 that's not what I said to you. I said, you will have a child coming from your own body. And so they'd had one child, Ishmael, the oldest one, but that was not the one that God was going to work out the story. And how long after Ishmael was born to, you said, an an Egyptian slave servant. So this was somebody that they brought back with them from Egypt. It Uh, looks like uh, it, yes, doesn't it? Because they'd had to go down to Egypt from Canaan when there was a time of, of famine. So it looks like they picked up this servant girl, which again suggests that, you know, they were not a badly off family. You know, they certainly had plenty of flocks uh, and they'd gone back. But God had made it very clear that this was not to be how he was going to work out his plan. So this first child, Ishmael, is then followed by a second child, Isaac, that we're talking about. Yes, sometime later is all it says that God speaks to him. So we're not given the exact time reference. But years passed between the children, so Ishmael would have been how old roughly when Isaac was born? We think he was about 13, so he's a very young teenager. And it's from there that a tradition comes amongst the Arab people 
because Ishmael will become the founder of the Arab nations. But circumcision is something that happens around about the age of 13, not at the age of eight days old, as is the Jewish tradition. So that's a long way, isn't it? I mean, if you think, um, now my wife and I waited for ages for our first child to come along, and we waited about five years before they came along. Then we couldn't stop them. Um, <laughs> and it, it's a long time of waiting and that monthly heartache that you you have. I'm trying to imagine the relationship between those two brothers as Ishmael and Isaac grew up together. As Isaac gets old enough to know what's going on, he's got this older brother who isn't the son of promise. Yeah, that must have been pretty tough, mustn't it? And of course, eventually it will be Isaac who will take over the lead of the family. Now, normally in those days, it was the eldest child who succeeded, but it's going to jump from the eldest child to the second one. Why? Because that's the one God had pinpointed. And the New Testament will pick that up with its whole idea of election, God calling and choosing people to particular tasks. But you can imagine this didn't make for an easy relationship. I mean, brother relationships can be fiery at the best of times, can't you? But but this can't have been straightforward. Now, in the episode when we discussed Abraham, you were telling us about this moment in Abraham's life and indeed in Isaac's life, when Isaac was presumably that bit older, uh, where God challenged Abraham's faith quite severely. Yes, in Genesis 22, um, the chapter begins with it saying that sometime later, again, we're not told exactly when, God tested Abraham's faith and says, take your son, your only son. Interesting phrase. Now, he has more than one, but you know what God's saying? Yet you're only one who came from the two of you, uh, the one that you love so much. And go to the land of Moriah and sacrifice him as a burnt offering on one of the mountains, which I'll show you. There's that thing again, which I'll show you, set out on the journey. And the next morning, they set off together and uh, Isaac says, where are we going, Dad? We're going to offer a sacrifice to God. Um, yeah, it's great, Dad, you know, but where's the sacrifice? And that powerful phrase, God himself will provide the sacrifice. I don't know if he knew what he was saying at that point. I doubt it. I think it's only with hindsight that we see that because as they then get to the place where they're going to do this, Abraham has to tie up his own son, this son God had promised him. Imagine what must be going through his thinking at time. And he binds him and he builds this altar to the living God whom he's trusted in, whom he's seen to so many things. And he lays his son there and he even picks up the knife. I mean, this would make real Hollywood drama stuff, wouldn't it? And just at that moment, he hears this voice, Abraham, Abraham. Yes, Lord, I'm here. I bet he was waiting for that call. <laughs> yes, Lord, I'm here. Don't lay a hand on the boy. Why? Because now I know truly where your heart is and that you wouldn't even withhold your own son from me. It's a very unusual thing in the Bible, by the way. Mm. The, the Bible's very clear that it's opposed to things like child sacrifice. This was a particular thing for a particular reason with a man who's going to be the founder of the, the family of faith throughout Scripture as, and, and to this day. As horrible as it is, would child sacrifice actually for peoples around that time been not uncommon? Yes, sadly so. 
mean, it, it wasn't widespread. Not every religion did it, but some most certainly did. As we will see through the Old Testament history at times, even some of the kings of Israel and Judah will end up offering their own children. So this was something that was done. So it would not have been alien to Abraham's thinking. He knew such things happened that the gods had asked for this, but his God, that, that must have been a real battle for him. And that's why I think that huge sigh of relief, no doubt, again, that bit comes out in the white space between the verses. But mm. I think God likes us to use godly imagination when we're reading. And this was a real story with a real dad and a real son. And uh, and God provides. He, he says, look, the angel says, turn around. There, there's the ram. And they offer that. And now God knows where Abraham's heart is. And that must have made a profound impact on Isaac, since it's him we're particularly thinking mm. about. I mean, what would you think at that point when your dad was about to do that? And yet this would become the God that Isaac himself would also come to know and to serve. And you said this was real people at a real time in a real place. I mean, nowadays, well, where where is that place? Well, the land of Canaan, where they come from, is what we would call Israel today. So this is happening all in those areas around the, the, the central Middle Eastern part there uh, in the area of Israel and to its south. And this specific moment of sacrifice or, or almost sacrifice, where, where is that geographically? We're told it's Mount Moriah. Now, there are different views, to be honest, about where that is. But one of the most common views is that it is the mount where the temple will ultimately be built in Jerusalem. So you talked about the impact that must have had on, on Isaac throughout his life, being there, remembering what happened, remembering the example of his father, if you like. How has you reflected on, on Isaac's life? Have you, have you thought about how that influenced his, his thinking and his belief in God? I think it must have brought home to him how very, very profound his father's faith was. And I think probably uh, many of the listeners will have grown up in Christian families. For me, one of the most profound things I remember is actually from my grandfather, who was a lay preacher in the Church of England in those days. I still have his old black floppy <laughs> Bible. And I remember how every evening he would be about 10 o'clock, 10.30 at night, and he would go to the dressing table in the room and he would get his Bible and he would open it at the kitchen table in those two up, two down houses in those days, open his Bible. And that was the signal for the rest of us to go to bed because he was going <laughs> to have his time uh, praying and reading. And I think what our grandparents and parents model to us in faith uh, has such a profound impact that always, I've never forgotten my grandfather doing that. I still have that Bible. I'm sure for Isaac, we're not told, but I'm sure particularly since he was so involved in it. It must have made such a profound impact upon the guy. So as he grew up, um, did he get married? He did. Abraham's wife sadly dies. It happens to all of us, doesn't it? We, we all get older. And uh, in Genesis chapter 24, as Abraham, he said, Abraham was now a very old man. My goodness, he was very old at 99 <laughs> and 100 when he had him, wasn't he? But he's getting even older now. And so what he realizes is he is not going to be around forever to head up this growing extended family of faith. 
And so what he needs is a good wife for his son, what every Christian parent today is praying for. Though whether we quite want to do it the way he did, uh, I'm not sure, because what he does is he he gets his one of his servants, it says his oldest servant, so presumably one who's been around for a while, one he can really trust, and he makes him take an oath, and he says, I'm going to send you back to where I came from. So that's interesting. He's going back to the family that he'd come from in Mesopotamia. Abraham himself was the son of Tehran. His whole extended family had come from Mesopotamia, modern Iran, Iraq. So there's hundreds of miles back yeah, to it, the family roots. It's probably about a thousand mile journey to go back to where they'd originally come from. Uh, but he probably travels about five or 600 miles and sends him back and says, I want you to go back where the family is and I want you to find a wife for my son there and bring her back. Uh, pretty big challenge for the servant, isn't he? You know, and he goes through all the, what if she doesn't want to come and everything yes. else? Is that not like looking for a needle in a haystack? It absolutely is. But God's really good at finding needles in haystacks, in my experience. And uh, we have this great story in chapter 21 of Genesis where he encounters this woman and he, he sort of he says to God God this is a big task the servant says God this is a big task please give me success Lord I'm I'm standing here besides this spring of water the young women are coming out of the town there to to get their water funny isn't it how they always gave that heavy job to the women in those mm. days mm. And he said, Lord, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to say to one of them, please give me a drink from your jug. And if she says, yes, have a drink and I'll water the camels too, God, let her be the one. And that's how I'll know who it is. Now, we really don't recommend that as a way of finding a wife um, today. But do you know what? God heard him. And I think when we cry out to God, even in the strangest of ways, at times, God hears him and be the next verse says, before he had finished praying, sometimes God answers our prayers almost before we can get them out. Before he had finished praying, he saw a young woman called Rebecca. Ah, she's now going to be the one who comes into the story. And sure enough, she comes. And here's the good bit in the story. It says, she was very beautiful. <laughs> now, that's always advantageous. Getting... A partner of God's choosing is great. And if you get a looker as well, well, that's a bonus as well, isn't it? And he definitely gets a looker here and she does exactly what he'd asked for and, and goes through this and she gives him the drink and says, oh, I'll water your camels as well. And then he's wondering, you know, Lord, is this it? And then he starts to ask, so wh whose daughter are you? And when she says, I I'm the daughter of, of Bethuel, and my grandparents and Nahor and Milka discovers this is part of the extended family. Right. And suddenly the penny begins to drop. And the next thing we know, he's bound down to God and saying, God, you are incredible. So it was a bullseye. Oh, it was a bullseye, slap bang in the middle, star shooting out. <laughs> and this is going to be a great romance The right story. needle in the right haystack. Yeah. Absolutely. So she then, what, travels back all those hundreds and hundreds of miles to be the wife to Isaac. She does. And when you think that, that demands incredible faith, doesn't it? Um, we're perhaps used to hearing stories these days of being people being taken to other countries, forced against their will to marry. But we've got to leave that aside. 
That's not what's happening here. Um, your parents were very much involved in choosing your partner in this ancient world, and you trusted your parents, and you knew that you were going to marry in family. You didn't marry outside that extended family. And so she trusts and she tells the family the story of what's happened, and the servant tells them, and before they know it, they're on the way back. They, they have to stay for a few days. Middle Eastern hospitality means they, they couldn't just turn around and go straight away. So they have to spend some days. And then eventually, off they go with the servants and her servant girls mounted on camels and with the various dairies and things that they would need. And they set off on this long journey. And Isaac, of course, at this point, hasn't yet met his wife-to-be. She hasn't met her husband-to-be. Yeah, they've not even had a picture, you know, <laughs> long before Facebook when you can look them up, isn't it? That's right. So when they do get to meet, how does that go? It goes absolutely amazingly. Because when they see one another, it really does turn out to be love at first sight. Interesting, isn't it, how an arranged marriage and a love marriage there come together. You know, those of us in the West think that arranged marriages couldn't possibly also be love marriages. But I've got many friends in the East, in places like India, who had arranged marriages. They have fantastic marriages. And this is an arranged marriage by God? This is an arranged marriage by God more than even by man. All Abraham has said is, go back and see if you can find a wife. And this servant has said, oh, God, needle in a haystack. And God arranges it. And when God does stuff, that's when it really works, isn't it? So Isaac and Rebecca get together. A new chapter begins then, I suppose. A new chapter begins because in Genesis 25, we find the death of Abraham. He's 175 by this point. They live very long ages in those days. No plastic pollution and air pollution, of course, in those days, is there? <laughs> and so... When he dies, the lead of the family passes on to Isaac, the second son, remember, not the first son, because that's whom God has appointed. So he's now the son of promise. He's the son of promise, but he gets it, yeah, because God has promised it to him. Mm. And Ishmael is what in, in the background, man? Obviously, he's 13 years older. Ishmael's still on the scene somewhere. He is, yes. He, he doesn't appear immediately in the stories here. The, the focus now switches to Abraham and his descendants because this is the ones through whom uh, God has promised. Here's the interesting thing, though. We see a repeat of the barrenness story once again. And Rebecca, too, will initially be barren. It's interesting, isn't it? It's like God makes this promise, then puts an obstacle in the way as a way of seeing whether they're going to trust or not. And she has to wait 20 years. That's a long time mm. before she gives birth to, guess what? You know, you wait for a bus and two come along at once. And that's exactly what happens here. She gives birth to twins. Twins, twin boys. To twin boys called Esau and Jacob. Esau, the firstborn, Jacob the second born. Strange thing happens when they're born. Esau is born first. And then moments afterwards, Jacob comes out grabbing his brother's heel. It's important later in, in the story. So not just a coincidence. Not just a coincidence. Again, it's going to be planned. And once again, 
we're running ahead, but it will not be the firstborn. It will be the secondborn. It will be Jacob that God continues to work the purpose through. So these twins come into their lives. I mean, one baby would be a handful. Two babies, <laughs> they've got plenty to uh, keep them busy there. And two, what, uh, I mean, how, how, were they similar? Were they different? They're twins. So there's a, there's a likeness, obviously. Yes, definitely a likeness. But they seem to have been very, very different characters, um, as can often happen. So as we read on in the story, we'll discover that Esau is, uh, is much more the rugged guy. He loves getting out in the country, and he would probably be the one who's climbing over everything these days. I've got a grandson who, almost from birth, just climbed everything and has done ever since. Um, so Esau is much more the the rugged outdoor type. And actually, word of warning here for parents, he will become Isaac's favorite. Whereas Jacob will become more Rebecca's favorite. Okay, so this he is He seems gonna... to be a much more sort of stay-at-home boy. Mm-hmm. Jacob. Yeah, perhaps okay. a bit more of a, a, a mummy's boy. Okay, so we've, we've got signs of, of favoritism from the parents to the children. We have, and this is never good, never works out well. We'll see it repeated in some of the history in the Old Testament, even with people like King David. So, yeah, there is going to be rivalry uh, between these two as they grow up. And as, the, as there seems to be between Isaac and Ishmael. Yes, exactly. It's interesting that the same theme is repeated again, isn't it? There's, there's rivalry. And yet through it all, uh, it will be the one that God has chosen for his purposes that will be the one that, if you like, comes out on top, comes out as the one that carries the story forward. Why would it seem that there was that favoritism? I mean, so Esau was the firstborn. So might that have swayed Isaac's favoritism to some extent? Yes, I think it might have done. Because again, if he's thinking with very natural thinking, then this is the one who's going to take over. He's the one with the birthright. But the minute we say that, that reminds us of another story, doesn't it? Because in chapter 25, Esau will actually sell his birthright. That meant the right to be seen as the firstborn. And the firstborn always got like a double portion of the inheritance. Why? Because they were going to become the head of the family and they would now have to care for the extended family. No social services and welfare state in those days. So he has most definitely the birthright. He's the one that his dad initially sees, presumably that God is going to do it through, bring about his plan. But we said he was an outdoor boy. Uh, he's also out he goes and uh, he's hunting one day and he, he comes back famished. And as he comes back home, he, he discovers his brother Jacob uh, cooking some stew, and he says, oh, I'm famished, I've been out hunting all day, give me some of that stew now. It's red stew, it's described as. Uh, that's how he got his other name, he saw Edom. Edom means red. Uh-huh. He was the red man. Yeah. Yeah, he wanted this red stuff. And Jacob says, sure, sure, I'll, I'll give you some of the stew, but, that's a big but, I'll give you stew in exchange for your birthright. And his brother says, what good's a birthright to me when I'm on the point of starvation? Yeah, you can have my birthright. Just give me 
some of that stew. And in that moment, that moment when Esau said yes to a, a physical need, he sold away what could have been God's plan. So in the cold him. light of day, for the sake of a meal, he gave away his inheritance. He did. And you know what? I wonder how many of us end up doing that sometimes. We have an urge, a need that we feel we've just got to satisfy now and we go for it. And and afterwards we think, man, that was just so dumb. Couldn't he have not said, oh, I didn't mean that? Well, no, I couldn't. Because in those days, when you did things like that, you see, we live in a culture where well, it's only words. I didn't mean it. Uh, in the ancient world, words that you spoke were believed to have power. The words that were spoken activated what was said. And not only that, but it will get confirmed when we get the later story in chapter 27 of Jacob then confirming that he's got his birthright by, by stealing it and getting his father's blessing. So it's like he's double got it now. One is he's been told he's got the birthright. And then in chapter 27, we discover that Isaac is very old now. He's virtually lost his eyesight. I wonder if it was something like cataracts in those days that just couldn't be dealt with where you couldn't really see what's there. So he couldn't even see his sons very well. Couldn't even see his sons. But he could feel and he could smell. And this is where the favoritism thing comes in because he says to his son, Isaac says to his son Esau, listen, I know I've not got long left. Just go out and kill me some game, you know, and you make me some stew. You do it so well. And bring me some back. Let me have one last really good meal before I die. And Rebecca overhears this and she starts to plot. One of the reasons I love the Bible and trust it is because it's so honest. It does not paint a gilded picture of the great heroes. There's some skullduggery going on here. And Jacob's her favourite son. She's def it's definitely her favourite son. So she says to him, here, your brother, just heard your dad say, Go and get some stew, and then when you bring it back, I'll bless you. So here's what I want you to do. I'm going to make some stew just like he makes it, and you're going to take it in. And, yeah, we know your dad might think you're not him, so we're going to put animal skins on your arms. It seems that Esau was a hairy man, the Bible says. <laughs> mm -hmm. I often think putting animal skins on your arm, he must have been very, very hairy yeah. indeed. But she basically pulls a con mm. on her own husband. To through get through Jacob? Yeah. To get, and he goes along with it, of course, because of, because of the inheritance. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So he's already been told; mm. he's already had this promise from his brother mm. that you're going to have the birthright. Mm. Now, what he needs is that sealing by his father's blessing. So he takes him the stew. Father, a bit doubtful at first, but then feel, oh yeah, yeah, it must be my son, and then lays his hands upon his head and speaks a blessing, which includes those words, may you be master over your brothers. And at that point, it's sealed. And of course, just like in any good Hollywood blockbuster, uh, at that point, his brother comes racing in with the stew and he says, well, I've just done it. And suddenly the penny drops. And he says, but dad, haven't you got a, haven't you got a blessing for me? And he says, well, no, I don't. The only blessing I have is that you'll live away from the richness of earth and from the dew of the heaven above. You'll live by your sword and you will serve your brother. 
But when you decide to break free, you'll shake his yoke off from your neck. In other words, there's going to be trouble between these boys in the future. And of course, there will be. And from there, descendants. It really was believed that once you'd spoken it out, you'd done it. Your words have power. Would that we today thought a bit more that our words had power before we spoke things out. The blessing is given away. And so the story will now move ahead, not through the one we might have expected, the firstborn son, but once again through the secondborn son, just showing how God chooses whom God wants. And sometimes that means even overruling and using some of the scheming and plotting that people end up doing. David Tavener was in conversation with Mike Beaumont, who's written about the people of the Bible throughout the Christian Basics Bible. Catch their conversations anytime on the UCB player or with your favorite podcast provider. Just search for Bible Biogs in 30 minutes.